Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this episode of the Food Focus Podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. On this episode, we'll talk about an illness outbreak in San Diego County out in California. We'll also discuss how fall flavors may be changing and may be moving away from Pumpkin Spice. And we'll discuss Domino's Pizza's partnership with Ford Motor Company. But first, let's talk J.M. Smucker as the company took it on the chin with first quarter earnings released last week. They hit a 52-week low on the stock market after their earnings report showed sales declines. Previously, we've discussed their need for increased competitive positioning among all natural and organics. We noted also that their more recent efforts in this regard likely too little too late to affect sales in the short term, and this was certainly borne out in this latest quarter's release. The few legacy brands struggling against the smaller craft competitors in the various spaces that Smuckers takes up. You correctly pointed out that we did cover their last earnings release, and this was sort of the same tale where you see the company isn't positioning themselves correctly. Yes, they've talked about it in several of their last earnings calls, the initiatives to go forward in the natural and organics categories, but you really see that the company's strategies that they've outlined haven't borne out fruit through the financial results this quarter, their first quarter, fiscal 2018. You see that is indeed the case with falling sales and profit. They actually ended up coming in below expectations versus the Zach's consensus estimate on earnings per share. Those estimates came in at $1.61 per share. They ended up at $1.51 per share. That's a 6% miss there. The $1.51 per share was a fall of 19%. So that helps to put it in perspective how they have lost their competitive edge. J.M. Smucker has been in the industry for quite some time, and they're sort of a bellwether stock when it comes to snack foods and other categories that are really big areas in the food industry. You see the $1.51 per share also was a non-gap measure. It was an adjusted basis net income of just $1.12 on a per share basis. So again, without one-time charges, that was reflective of a 23% decrease year over year. This miss was driven primarily by a reduction in overall sales. Again, I mentioned sales fell around 4% as well, a function of largely declining demand domestically. We'll talk a lot about their United States business. The company did show improved cash flow. The one positive aspect for the company with free cash flow at $234.7 million this quarter versus $188.7 million that was produced last quarter. We delve into those struggles, and you see Folgers was the brand singled out by Mark Smucker's comments. He is their CEO. Low sales were driven, and I quote, by lower-than-anticipated volumes for Folgers Roast and Ground Coffee. He goes on to say that they have taken actions to improve their competitive positioning for Folgers, Again, as we've discussed in the past, these initiatives may be a bit behind. Overall, we'll talk a little bit about some of what they're doing with the Folgers brand, but as a whole, their U.S. retail coffee division was hammered in sales and profit, both sales down $32.5 million or 6%, profit down $50 million or 29%. 
and volume and mix took net sales down 8% in this particular category. Folgers declined was enough to offset gains in the Dunkin' Donuts branded segment. Again, we've talked about that licensing relationship that has been a lucrative one as they use that Dunkin' brands to really extend what they have going on in their coffee division. Higher commodity costs were blamed for lower margins. We've discussed commodity costs before, and commodity costs are rising for coffee, just not by as much as we're seeing here overall. In fact, looking on the commodities markets, coffee prices are reasonably flat year over year, hardly indicative of an 820 basis point decline in their margins. Realistically, we are seeing an erosion of economies of scale benefit on those lower volumes. And you see they are looking to introduce larger canisters. This was the one initiative I had alluded to. They're looking to actually have bigger volumes and hoping to have bigger volumes selling over the next few quarters through a promotional push. But again, with this campaign, you really have to see how that's going to affect margins overall while introducing larger sizes may help them in their market share position, at least maintaining their market share in the coffee industry. This may not be sustainable in terms of the economic profit long term. And speaking of economics, they are implementing now some K-Cup cost savings initiatives. They said that they've had these in the pipeline for quite some time, and they're just now starting to implement these. And so you'll see some margin savings down the line in the next couple of quarters. However, the one caveat there is they did not get into the specifics of how they're going to achieve those cost savings. Their retail consumer foods division also fell in terms of retail consumer foods this is where you see a lot of the prepackaged foods like the smuckers jam that you're probably well acquainted with peanut butter crisco pillsbury those type of brands this division fell by eight percent there was an eight percent decline in sales however profit was even last year despite a sales loss of 44 million or just above 44 million and this is because the margin here went up 180 basis points credited for the increase in margins. Crisco, Pillsbury, and Smuckers, all three were credited, as were higher prices charged to distributors and saving money on the marketing front. So that SG&A expense been cut down in the retail consumer foods division, and that might be a very good reason as to the decline in sales, the fact that they cut marketing expenses over the last quarter. We've talked a little bit about some of the negatives out of this call. Leighton mentioned the cash position as one of the positives. Some of the other positives include their emerging growth brands as such as Cafe Bustelo, the Sahale Snacks, and Smucker's Uncrustables, as well as Nature's Recipe, but one of their major areas of improvement has been pet foods. As we've talked about on the Retail Focus podcast, pet food continues to be a hard-driving category in the U.S. in general. We spoke most recently of Tractor Supply Company realizing some growth in pet foods that spurred same-store sales northward. And we're seeing the same thing borne out with those producers that are upstream of the retail sales. As Smucker's U.S. retail pet food sales increased by $2.2 million over the same quarter last year, this is only a slight increase in terms of the amount of sales. However, it didn't get borne out on the bottom line as pricing pressure kind of destroyed them here. They moved significantly more volume. In fact, if you look at the amount in terms of the dog food that they were actually able to move out of their warehouses 
the volume was way up for Smuckers. But because of the lower output pricing that was forced on them because of a promotional landscape in pet foods and also because of higher input costs, their profit fell a whopping 20% over last year in this category, which accounts for a 470 basis point decline all the way down to 18.8% in terms of margin in pet food. Looking at some of the other positives, their international sales and their away-from-home sales were up. Away-from-home is a new category for them. They've kind of shuffled some U.S. food service and delivery to restaurants in this away-from-home division, as well as universities and healthcare facilities. If you look from the outside in, this basically means anytime you get a little packet of Smuckers or Jif in a restaurant or in a healthcare facility or at a university in the food service there, this comes from the away from home division of Smuckers. And they did see growth in terms of their food services division. This category saw a sales increase of 8 million or 3%. Now looking ahead, questions remain as to what Smuckers could do or should do. And I think one of the recommendations we certainly had was to either acquire or develop more craft brands in-house. And you can create these craft brands as what we've seen in the jelly category and the jams category for Smuckers that aren't necessarily craft or small batch made, but if they carry that look, carry that appearance, we've seen some other companies in food and actually beverage manufacturing have success. Most recently, Anheuser-Busch did this with Shock Top about 10 years in the beer industry, and that's paid dividends. So this is one of the things that they can work on. Leighton, as we were talking before the podcast, you had a few other things that the company could possibly look at to either drive sales or improve the bottom line. Sort of the same initiatives we had hit on during their last earnings call in the fourth quarter of last year. While the company has admitted they need to change, they need to show their shareholders and analysts that they intend to evolve in a big way, in a meaningful way, and they need to do so before their strong brands get devalued on the perception that they are old and stale. And this is one of the things, one of the taglines they keep using. The managers and executives within the company are saying that, well, yes, we have a stable of amazing brands that have been around for many decades, and that's extremely meaningful to the company, but it's only going to be a matter of time before that just becomes old talk because at the end of the day, those brands too need to evolve. And yes, you can use that brand awareness to have further extensions, but you need to have a restructuring from within the company that is, again, meaningful to shareholders. And that's going to mean a lot of investments in the short term that could erode the bottom line something that we've already been seeing from the company, but not because of their reinvestment initiatives, more so because people are actually drifting towards those craft brands that are imposing on their market share. These concepts are very similar to what Walmart has been faced with over the past two years in terms of the reinvestment there in their e-commerce and omni-channel presence. Just two to three years ago, Walmart's presence in the e-commerce and omni-channel space was almost embarrassing. The site-to-store operations were horrible. Their online presence in terms of product mix was very lackluster, but now you've seen all of their investments, not only with up and coming brands in the online space, but things they're doing structurally from within, things that cost tens of millions of dollars, but they're making that push. They've said from about two years ago during an earnings call that technology and staffing were going to be the keys for their future success and sustainability. And you saw at that time a lot of analysts questioning the move because they saw that in the short to midterm, that was for sure going to affect the bottom line. 
and you see the stock taking a massive 20 to 30 dollar per share hit after that time frame but now you see the results start to get borne out of all of that investment from within the company and now shares are near an all-time high not quite at the 90 dollars per share mark but hovering around 80 dollars per share and this is exactly what jm smucker needs to do yes they may take it hit in the short term profit wise for a couple of years but in terms of restructuring especially from the manufacturing side it's imperative to get started sooner than later moving on to domino's pizza and the rise of the machines no robots have not yet taken over the world but with this latest partnership with ford motor company domino's pizza is looking to have people have more accurate wait times and to get a little bit more convenience all with autonomous automobiles we all know it's just a matter of time before robots do in fact take over the world but why not at least have them deliver us a pizza in the meantime while some jobs may never be replaced by advancements in ai driving has been proving time and time again to be a potential game changer for transportation industries in the near future obviously we've talked about in the past partnerships with companies with Walmart as it pertains to Uber and their driverless car systems that are taking place, not necessarily with Walmart, but Uber's investment in that category. And a lot of other companies like Google looking to make it easier for people to not only get moved around, but to get their products moved around and delivered to them. One example, by the way, we should mention before we get started, a job that is immune to a robot takeover could actually be the act of making a custom pizza. And Domino's actually talks about this on their website and that they're Domino's world's fastest pizza maker. Dennis Tran can make a large pizza in just 34.36 seconds. And so obviously there are going to be some jobs that robots can't take from us. But right now it appears that delivery is going to be made a pilot program through the Ford Motor Company for about a few weeks or so in an area of the country that has seen a lot of success in the pizza industry. That's three large pizzas in just 34 seconds for Dennis Tran. So that's a rather quick pace that, especially for custom work, might be faster than a machine could ever pump out. So let's take a look at why Domino's might be looking to perhaps foray into a partnership with driverless cars. Now, delivery, obviously a massive business for not only Domino's, the entire pizza QSR industry in general. And it goes above and beyond pizza now. We see the rise in popularity of a restaurant like Jimmy John's. And of course, a lot of local restaurants also offer delivery. And this is an age where everyone's talked about a new way of delivering, whether it be groceries or food. It's those last mile services that have been setting pizza QSRs apart over the last few years. And one of the reasons, honestly, why we see this rising growth for Papa John's and Domino's is because people are relying more and more on delivery services. Taking a step back and looking at Domino's, they're 97% franchise owned. That's 800 different franchisees throughout the United States. And a lot of these franchisees actually started their careers as drivers or pizza makers at a Domino's. In fact, Domino's estimates that 90% of franchisees actually got their start on the ground floor. That's how important the delivery driver position is to a business like Domino's. And in fact, Domino's delivery employees cover 10 million miles each week in the U.S. alone. This is something that's increased precipitously over the last couple of years as Domino's average unit sales have skyrocketed during that same time span. Now, a lot of employees that work kind of on the ground level at a pizza delivery option or at a pizza QSR 
would like to work delivery in part because of the extra tips. Now, the tips sometimes come out in the wash because, of course, employers can pay less if some of that tip money is offsetting, but it gives you the opportunity to make above and beyond what you would ordinarily make with just an hourly wage if you were making pizzas in the back room. So that's one of the reasons why this delivery job is actually kind of coveted in the QSR industry because there is an opportunity to make more money above and beyond just what you would be getting paid hourly. However, all that being said, despite the fact that this is a sought-after job position and a job position that's usually awarded to kind of those ground floor employees that might have a little bit more experience and might have a safe driving record, they're still fairly costly for larger corporations because of insurance. There are entire insurance package subsets that are brokered throughout the U.S. to take care of these type of coverages. And according to Trusted Choice Independent Insurance Agents, there are an extreme amount of costs associated with pizza delivery accidents alone in the U.S. on an annual basis. I think this is interesting as we were researching this story late, and I don't think either you or I might have known that pizza delivery and other driver sales jobs like pizza delivery ranked fifth in the list of the top 10 most dangerous occupations in a U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics study. In fact, 38 deaths were reported for this occupation per 100,000 workers. 29 deaths of those 38 were due to accidents, and then nine deaths due to things like assaults and robberies when you actually walk up to someone's house to deliver the pizza. So obviously, the more deaths per 100,000, the more those insurance premiums are going to go up for companies like Domino's, and they would be able to potentially reduce this with the driverless cars or if they were able to kind of remove the delivery driver from that liability. Now, that's not certain. And in fact, insurance companies may choose to charge companies like Domino's even more than they would with human drivers if they use driverless cars. But again, that's something the insurance industry will have to adjust to. And there are other less talked about issues that affect all of these franchisees that we talk about. We talk about Domino's being well over 90% franchised out. And if there are a few bad delivery drivers for a few of these franchisees in terms of recklessness, it may make the company look bad overall, especially with social media out there. So that's another reason why Domino's might be making this push towards delivery drivers that are somewhat automated or robotic delivery drivers, as this deal might suggest. Now, in terms of companies taking care of driver liability conflicts, there are a lot of different coverages out there with these robust cap limits for insurance. Now, non-owned or hired auto coverage is common for drivers that are not on a contract basis, but they still use their own cars to deliver pizzas. This is important because a lot of personal auto policies won't cover an accident your driver causes while driving a personal car for business purposes. As a comparison, Uber, of course, their employees are all classified as independent contractors, and so they suggest that drivers get specific coverages on their cars since technically the owners of said cars are acting as their own business and not acting on behalf of Uber necessarily. And in fact, a question that a lot of insurers are now required to ask drivers is if they're going to be using their automobile for business use at all throughout a given coverage year. You see this leak over certainly to the pizza industry. There are a lot of different options here for pizza companies in terms of having humans behind the cars and in terms of trying to get them insured, whether it's insured on the driver's own dime or on the company's own dime. But again, this pilot deal with Ford Layton, this might be one way in which Domino's can get out from underneath the insurance premiums potentially, but also 
kind of maintain some sort of safety and security for their delivery drivers at the same time. Trent, I have to say, you just excellently outlined the exact reasons why Domino's would be pursuing such things as autonomous cars for delivery, because it's only the liability. They're looking at their bottom line. Domino's is obviously a publicly traded company, and they have a lot of positive momentum behind them from the previous quarters, from the previous years. They've been extremely successful, and they need to evolve, just like any other business. If they were to be profitable, if they're having a profitable stance in the future, they have to be able to adjust to what the market wants. And if their competitors, and we're going to talk about the dynamics a little bit later, but if Papa John's or Pizza Hut decides to get in to the autonomous car industry as far as delivery is concerned and be able then to beat them on margins, they then become an unsustainable company in a public-facing way. So the deal with Ford, the Ford Motor Company, is a deal that we've been looking towards for quite some time because we've known that Ford Motor Company is pursuing technology within the AI revolution over the past several years and a lot of strategic changes within the company. We talk about leadership at the very top. Recently changed with James Hackett taking over as CEO and a lot of people were questioning why is this happening? Because Ford is extremely profitable. They are obviously one of the top car makers still in the United States, but everyone was saying, well, we need leadership that's going to be very agile, one that's willing to change overall. And while Ford Motor Company isn't a company we talk about a lot, we really do have to translate that into how that affects the food industry and the retail industry overall as it relates to the service aspects of those business. Domino's openly flaunts its vast digital footprint via their website. They talk about having now 95% of smartphones being covered with the ordering app via the iPhone, Android, or Windows operating systems. And Domino's now reaches 60% of sales via digital ordering channels in the United States. That was by the end of 2016. And as we can tell from each subsequent earnings call, Domino's is reaching more and more people via the digital networks that they have in place. And they also have more iterations of these platforms to make it easier, a bit of smoother transactions for customers to get these orders on through. And I think that this partnership with Ford is not only going to be a cost savings long term, they're hedging obviously against those liability risks that Trent so smartly lined out. But the fundamental question is here, how can we get pizzas to people in a more reliable manner and do so in a safe manner as well that people can learn to rely on in the long term? And Ford and its autonomous driving program have officially partnered with Domino's to offer customers an opportunity to forego human interaction. Ann Arbor, Michigan is where this pilot program is going to be taking place over the next few weeks. They're going to be randomly selecting Domino's customers to get the option to have their pizza brought over by a modified Ford Fusion Hybrid. This Ford Fusion Hybrid actually looks, if you look at the pictures online, it looks a lot like the Google autonomous vehicle. So there's sensors all around the vehicle. There's a lot of lights on the vehicle to let the customers know, to let the pedestrians know what this car is. And obviously, because of that, the car looks a little bit space age. But payments overall, we're talking about the transaction here, will be made on the outside of the vehicle. So the pizza is going to be in the backside of the car along with a tablet on the outside of the vehicle, the back left of the vehicle, actually, where there's going to be a tablet where the person can just type in the last four digits of their cell phone number, see their order pop up, and then pay via credit card or another mobile payment app. And I think this is going to be interesting because they're taking away cash transactions, which is historically one of the ways a lot of people have been paying for delivery pizza. 
Obviously, mobile payments and credit cards have been the wave of the future, but a lot of these transactions are still historically cash transactions. So that's going to be one change here. And I do have to say there is a caveat in this piloting program. There is still going to be a human being in the automobile, just like with the Uber program that was actually recently canceled with all of those autonomous driving systems. There still has to be a human in place in the driver's seat. So obviously there's going to be human inside the car, but the human does not have to interact. The employee does not have to interact with those getting the pizza. So you look at some of the statements by the companies, especially Ford, the head of autonomous and electric vehicles. Sheriff Maraby said, we don't want to wait until we have autonomous vehicle technology already to start understanding some of these businesses. So we're doing things parallel, meaning that they're trying to iron out all the details of these autonomous vehicle systems before the problems arise in the future. They're trying to hedge against time, essentially, because they see autonomous cars hitting the roads by 2021 to 2022. And they said, once that happens, these partnerships with businesses will start to evolve, but they want to get ahead of the curve. They want to iron out these small details. Again, talking about the actual transactions that can transpire with the logistics aspect of all of these businesses. Once this gets ironed out, it'll be very streamlined once you start to see the robots taking over on the street. So overall with this program, there are quite a bit of takeaways, but one underlying theme is that technology is going to be changing how consumers get their services and their products. And it's already changing in the pizza industry. In fact, Domino's is using drones in part of Germany, according to Wire magazine. And, and you know, anytime you start to skirt liability or try to skirt insurance liability, by using technology that just provides an entirely different set of liabilities too because insurance companies will no doubt be wary of these driverless cars to start out with especially if there are a few malfunctions those are likely to be very well publicized so if the insurance rates indeed are going to have to stay down there's going to have to be a period of time of about three to five years where there's basically no incidents with driverless cars whatsoever so that insurance companies kind of cut down those premiums on pizza establishments we're sure that other companies like papa john's and pizza hut too will keep a close eye on the results for this short but potentially long-term partnership between ford and domino's and maybe might hatch a partnership of their own to the retailers or small businesses out there, maybe to the e-commerce companies that are listening to this podcast, if you've ever wanted to decrease your shopping cart abandonment rate or increase your potential shopper audience, you can do so by offering purchase financing options to your shoppers. You know, Macy's, Home Depot, a lot of other companies do this, but it costs them millions of dollars to manage and offer these services. And that's not practical if you're a small business or even a mid-cap business that's out there. Not practical at all. And now you can offer your shoppers the same purchase financing options as the big guys without all the hassle, headache, or complexity. You see, Gain Loads provides merchants of all sizes across many different industries the same big box financing tools without the cost or this complexity. Simply download or install the Gain Loads widget on your website or post a sign in front of your store, and you and your customers will start seeing the immediate benefit from your increased purchasing power. To be part of their pilot program as a retailer, including some signage contact info at gainloans.com that's info at g-a-n-e 
www.lowe'sloans.com. Again, this program comes at zero cost to the retailer. The only thing it does is it has the potential to boost your top and bottom line info at gainloans.com. A proud sponsor of the Retail Focuses run-up to shop.org in September. Well, with fall approaching, pumpkin everything is hitting stores, but there are some food trends that may be challengers to the wave of pumpkin. First, we have to begin with a brief industry overview of that incumbent pumpkin. When many people think pumpkin, they think of the later months in the year. We're talking October through November. In that time frame, you see demand tying into canned pumpkin for baking pies and other dessert dishes and, of course, spices. People would be right to assume that pumpkin demand in terms of filling and spices spikes towards the end of the year. According to the Agriculture Marketing Resource Center, Libby's, which is owned by Nestle Company, have almost 90% of the North American market for canned pumpkin with 90% of it sold in only four months time. And you can guess those four months are going to be towards the end of the year from October to January. The USDA Economic Research Service reports that the demand for fresh specialty pumpkins continues to expand as consumers look for new and interesting variations. You see also that's going to extend out beyond pumpkin now. Nestle uses this leverage to distribute pumpkin-laced coffee mate products and pumpkin-infused cookies. States with the highest production yields for pumpkins are Illinois, California, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New York. As a basket, those states actually make up 50% of the total U.S. output, actually a little bit more than 50% overall of the pumpkin production in the United States. In 2016, approximately 1.6 billion pounds of pumpkins were produced. So you're seeing a very large amount of pumpkins over the last several years being produced. However, that has actually stagnated overall. And you see overall production of pumpkins means 75% of these yields are actually sold for commercial use for things like spices, these fillings that we're talking about with desserts and those types of things, meaning that pedestrian patches make up a very small percentage of farms. But talking with industry leaders, the push towards pumpkin was much earlier this year. This was covered on social media, of course, but there were a few distributor level issues as well. One major flavoring company representative we talked to said the lead on ordering pumpkin related products was a good two weeks earlier than the last year. So there's a lot of things happening within the industry. And it's curious what may happen overall as types of tastes differ during the seasonal months. Yeah, pumpkin has become ubiquitous with the fall, but there's also been quite a bit of pumpkin backlash. And we saw that backlash this year on social media with people complaining that pumpkin actually came out a little bit too early for their particular taste that was borne out with that flavoring company representative who said that there might be some issues especially in early fall with keeping up with earlier than ever pumpkin demand let's take a look at some companies that are rolling out pumpkin related products this week tim hortons is going above and beyond just their beverage segment with pumpkin spice Timbits, which are their version of donut holes, if you're not familiar with the Tim Hortons. Uh, they also have a pumpkin spice donut and a pumpkin spice muffin, as well as an iced cappuccino that is pumpkin spice. The official rollout for this was actually earlier this week on August 28th. Meanwhile, Starbucks is rumored to be rolling out their pumpkin spice latte of fame on September 1st, which would be Friday of this week in the same vein, Dunkin' Donuts going all in on pumpkin with their August 28th rollout, approximately a week before Starbucks rumored rollout. 
with coffees and lattes, of course, but also donuts and munchkins along with muffins. Munchkins is Duncan's version of the Timbits, if you will. They also have a new pumpkin cream cheese spread that was new for this year as well. Aubon Pan introduced a series of items on August 29th that are pumpkin or fall themed, including a pumpkin croissant with pumpkin filling, so they're doubling up on the pumpkin there, as well as a pumpkin pie bon tart. In terms of prepared foods, there's been a ton of movement in this area, but most notably Cheerios rolling out pumpkin-flavored offerings in mid-August. That took place a couple of weeks ago. The product, a lot of people pointed out, looks suspiciously like the Trader Joe's pumpkin O's that have existed and been popular for several years. But all of this pumpkin has created somewhat of a backlash to pumpkin. And because of that, flavor innovators are beginning to push towards other typical fall flavors, but trying to push them to the forefront in exchange for pumpkin spice. Banana is actually something of note with Tim Hortons releasing banana chip Timbits for the first time this year and also banana bread as part of their fall rotation. Apple is also a flavor that's cycling back around. Sauce brand Monin released for the first time ever a caramel apple butter syrup for food service establishments. Caramel apple butter being kind of a new flavor to their portfolio. Also, Aubon Pan introduced a butternut squash and apple soup as well as an apple Danish. So they're finding ways to fold in apples, where in the case of the Danish, that's a typical application, but the butternut squash and apple soup is a little bit different. But perhaps the most notable up-and-coming fall flavor trend that we've noticed this year is maple. And honestly, I think we both believe that maple will be on the rise for the next couple of years, maybe not reaching a point of ubiquity like pumpkin spice, but certainly something to keep an eye out for and certainly something that companies will be using in their LTOs going forward. We're seeing this already this year. Dunkin' Brands has a new maple pecan flavored coffee for their part. So not only is it pumpkin with Dunkin', but also the maple pecan as well as a maple sugar bacon sandwich with maple smoked bacon as well as the egg on that breakfast sandwich. The ice cream brand Halo Top, which is growing in terms of market share, they rolled out a new pancakes and waffles flavor this month as well. It's got a very heavy maple flavor on there. The idea behind Halo Top is it's kind of a healthier-for-you ice cream than your typical ice cream. So far, and through the first couple of weeks of the rollout, the pancakes and waffles flavor has been very well-received by customers. Aubon Pan, once again, they actually combine pumpkin with maple in a maple pumpkin butter that's topped a lot of their products so far over the course of this week in terms of LTOs. Also, that squash and apple soup we talked about, that's finished with a drizzle of maple. And the aforementioned Monin, which again creates syrups and sauces that go to food service companies, they've received a surge of interest for their maple spice flavorings as well. So don't sleep on maple is what we're saying. And we're seeing that as a potential trend, not only for this year, but that might build into the next couple of years with growing consumer weariness surrounding the pumpkin spice trend. We move on to our final story where we get into the health aspects of food and most notably food safety as a no good, very bad hepatitis A outbreak has hit San Diego and the city is actually encouraging all food workers there to get vaccinated. What started as an outbreak among mostly the homeless population in San Diego has led to a reported 352 hepatitis A cases in the San Diego area. And it's gotten to the point where restaurant owners are encouraging not only everyone to wash their hands before eating and touching food. Now, this is on the customer side, not on the employee side. Of course, employees are always encouraged to wash their hands before touching food. 
but they're encouraging their customers to do so. In fact, food is such a huge carrier of hepatitis A, the San Diego health authorities are even encouraging area residents to eat with their own utensils, according to the San Diego County website. That's one of the reasons why we're talking about this story, is that this outbreak has the capacity to grow to something even larger. Now, one doctor from the San Diego area said this outbreak is especially troubling because sick patients go into hospitals, get misdiagnosed, and then get released back out into society. If one of those sick patients is a food service worker, obviously that endangers everyone that worker comes into contact with, and more importantly, all the food that person comes into contact with. This has amplified worries about the virus spreading in hospitals in particular, where the staff may be immunized for this, but others may not be. And that's another thing that San Diego County is really trying to impress is that people need to be vaccinated for hepatitis A, if at all possible. As you alluded to, Trent, the county's public health officer has now recommended that even people who handle food get vaccinated as the outbreak has grown to levels not previously foreseen. They're saying that this has really taken a lot of authorities by surprise. A lot of people in the area, they were saying, really weren't privy to the amount of people who were getting hepatitis A and how it's been spreading over the last few months. But again, this latest media push is helping to really educate people on the facts and to try to get more people vaccinated. Again, food is one of the biggest carriers of hepatitis A. It's not just served food, but restaurant workers who must deal with dirty dishes must also concern themselves through protection or immunization. In all, as of August 22nd, there have been, as Trent said, 352 cases, 264 hospitalizations, and 14 deaths associated with this particular outbreak. Advocates for the homeless population have been trying to relay the message to them, trying to get all of them immunized and educated on the public health risks associated with this hepatitis A outbreak. According to the World Health Organization, or the WHO, hepatitis A is a viral liver disease that can cause mild to severe illness. The hepatitis A virus, HAV, is transmitted through ingestion of contaminated food and water or through direct contact with an infectious person. So that's exactly why silverware is recommended that you use it from your home. You use your own utensils. Prevention for those in and around the San Diego area includes vaccines for hepatitis A. There's actually two, and it's not required by the government. However, it is thoroughly recommended, especially now when there is an outbreak in this county area. Vaccination is recommended for all children aged 12 months or older, for travelers to certain countries, and for people at high risk for infection with the virus. I think it would fit into the latter category here where you have a lot of people Within the population, again, their metro population in San Diego is around 2.2 million. So with the infection right now taking place, it is imperative that those in the area get immunized. The hepatitis A vaccine is given as two shots six months apart. The second shot is actually a booster shot, which adds the length of overall protection under normalized circumstances. With that booster shot, a typical person may have up to 20 years of protection against hepatitis A. In the news specifically, we've actually seen an increase in hepatitis A cases, not only from food, but in other states with unrelated causes. You see, hepatitis A was recently discussed on a Food Focus podcast in June, where a tuna supplier is being investigated by the FDA for a possible contamination. There's still no sicknesses linked to the Hilo Fish Company, but they had decided to pull all of their frozen tuna product off the shelves 
and notify both their suppliers and their previous customers. For that particular case, it appears as though the FDA and CDC are still investigating the origin and why the contaminated fish or the tested fish came back positive. And you're saying that continued tests are happening, but again, no illnesses reported, so good news there. But you see last year, frozen strawberries were blamed for a contamination case that swept through multiple areas in Trent. This actually leads us to a multitude of other cases in other states that have been more and more pronounced as hepatitis A has been making rounds in the media headlines over the past few months. That's right. Frozen strawberries were blamed for a contamination case that was led back to ICAP distributors. They appeared to be the main source of the contaminated berries. It's unclear how the strawberries became contaminated in the first place, but the FDA found hepatitis A in four different samples of ICAP frozen strawberries last year, so it was fairly widespread. The contamination affected multiple states, but in particular, Tropical Smoothie Cafe was a growing QSR plus or fast casual concept, depending on how you want to to find them was first implicated. It turned out they were just using the bad strawberries in their drinks on the East Coast. It was a supplier issue and not a restaurant-specific issue. 129 of the nearly 150 cases in that particular outbreak last year were tied to Tropical Smoothie Cafe. No deaths, however, 52 hospitalizations. As it was found out, the strawberries all came from Egypt. This year, Colorado and Michigan have both reported increased hepatitis A cases, with some experts actually blaming drug use, not food, that's linked to the opioid epidemic. Also, Salt Lake City has recently seen a rise in cases, which has prompted the opening of temporary clinics for individuals to get shots. Again, those outbreaks aren't necessarily connected with food, as some of the outbreak in San Diego County, not all but some, has but the point remains, hepatitis A passes very quickly through food and food service restaurants. And if you're a resident close to one of these problem areas that we've talked about, it might behoove you to get these preventative shots, especially if you're in the general population on a regular basis, going to restaurants or certainly working in restaurants as well. Well, we close out our food focus every week with a segment we call What We Ate, where we each talk about a segment that's new or newer to the world of food. And we begin with Leighton. Talked about this company before, but Wow Baking has a chocolate chip cookie that wowed me recently. I bought it at a Big Lots. And Big Lots is interesting as this is a company we've talked about on the retail focus. They're having more natural and organic products on their store shelves and their food departments. They've obviously expanded through freezers and coolers as well. So really trying to make the push into these consumable goods. You see, these chocolate chip cookies struck my attention because they're wheat and gluten-free, and they are just absolutely delicious. Obviously, I'm in love with any chocolate chip cookie, but these ready-to-eat cookies were extremely inexpensive at a $3.50 price point. You get about 25 or so cookies per package. You have an approximate serving size of around four cookies per person. You see total fat is around 12 grams, 260 calories, and that's going to be approximately the same amount of fat and caloric content as another ready-to-eat chocolate chip cookie. But again, for me, it's about the ingredients and it's about the price point, and this was just right for me. The ingredients include gluten-free flour, which is a mixture of brown rice, sweet rice, and tapioca, and then you have chocolate chips, which is all natural ingredients there. And then molasses, cornstarch, potato starch, and pure vanilla end off the ingredient list. And I think overall, again, given that price point, you can't get a more delicious item. 
and it's going to be a little bit more expensive. I did a little price comparison specifically for this edition of the podcast, and you see that prices are a little bit more upward if you go to a Whole Foods or a natural grocers for this particular product, but you can go to wowbaking.com to see all of their different products and how they're trying to diversify their product mix through different research and development activities, but a very good brand, a very good company, and a very good recommendation I have this week that's extremely tasty. Again, I have to say I ate more than one whole pack. I ate probably eight times the recommended serving sizes because Overall, I I finished two packages within about 30 minutes. I don't eat snack foods much, but this week I was enticed by a deal on Triscuits at my local grocer. Now, the typical SRP for Triscuits for a 9-ounce package runs about $3.20 to $3.50, but in this circumstance, it was under $2. So I went ahead and purchased a package of a relatively new flavor, balsamic vinegar and basil, which was rolled out nationwide during the course of the last year. And this Triscuit was robustly flavored, certainly. I've had other flavored Triscuits. I do like the rosemary and olive oil version, but this one took the cake. And in fact, even though it says it's balsamic vinegar and basil, it it has a real tomato taste to it. And since I use tomatoes oftentimes to top Triscuits, it basically just cut out one of the steps. Now, I will say this. It does seem to be high in terms of flavor and sodium, and looking at the nutrition contents bears that out a little bit. So it does dry your mouth out. Make sure you've got water by. Serving size is six crackers, and I tell you, that's more than enough for these robust crackers to satisfy anyone. Just 120 calories for those six crackers, and I've found that the one package, unlike with Layton's Cookies, has gone a long way for me. That'll do it for us on the Food Focus Podcast. We're back later this week with the Retail Focus Podcast. Lots to talk about in the retail world, so make sure you tune in for that. That'll be up on Friday, September 1st. Everyone have a great week, and we'll be back here a week from now. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. 